On this week in Enterprise Tech, we're going to go out with a bang with Mr. Brian. She is my co-host. We're going to talk botnets, DARPA, working with Raytheon, Sassy Enterprise. Plus, we're going to plead our in-depth view of the world of DNS with our third episode and final episode talking about internal DNS and Active Directory with experts Josh Qua and Rosh Gibson from InfoBlox. You definitely should not miss this episode. Twilight on the set. Podcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. This is Twilight This Week in Enterprise Tech, episode 573, recorded December 15th, 2023. DNS part three, exploring internal DNS and AD. This episode of This Week in Enterprise Tech is brought to you by our friends at IT Pro TV Now, ACI Learning. ACI's new solution, Insights, assists in identifying and fixing skill gaps in your IT teams. Visit go.acilearning.com slash twit. Twit listeners can receive up to 65% off an IT Pro Enterprise Solution Plan after completing their form. Based on your team's size, you'll receive a properly quoted discount tailored to your needs. And by Vanta. Automate compliance and streamline security reviews with the leading trust management platform. Join 6,000 fast-growing companies like Chili Piper, Patch, and Autodesk that use Vanta to manage risk and prove security in real time. You can try Vanta for free for seven days by going to vanta.com slash enterprise. No costs or obligations. And by Miro, the online workspace for innovation where your team can dream, design, and build the future together from any location. Tap into a way to map processes, visualize content, run retrospectives, and keep all your documents and data in one place. Get your first three boards for free at Miro.com slash podcast. Welcome to Twyatt This Week in Enterprise Tech, the show that is dedicated to you, the enterprise professional, the IT pro, and that geek who just wants to know how this world's connected. I'm your host, Louis Moreska, your guide to the big world of the enterprise. But I can't guide you by my net. By myself, I need to bring in experts, experts in their fields, talking to the very own, walking back my favorite human being, one of my favorite human beings, Mr. Brian Chigibert. How's it been going on this week? What, what's been keeping you busy? Actually, uh, I requested that my partner back in Honolulu send me a uh, our demo G-Pon rig. Um, the idea is, you know, single strand of fiber. It's exactly what all these people, you know, AT&T, Verizon, all these people use for fiber to the home. Well, I'm going to see if it's going to work nicely for distributing fiber through the Central Florida Fairground. So that ought to be really interesting. And uh, looking forward to playing around with that stuff again. Can, can you buy it in the bulk, basically? Oh, yeah, sure. Um, actually, Ubiquity has them. And there's all kinds. Um, you can actually put uh, optical network terminals, the, the head end portion. You can actually have one that's got f- two ports and hang it on a um, pole okay. and run it off solar or run it off um, whatever. So there's all kinds of ways of doing it. And the um, piece that goes into the home, the uh, uh, G-Pon itself, those things are down to, I think, like 25 bucks each now. Wow. Very so fiber to the home is getting really, really cheap. And all in, all through the Orlando metropolitan area, I'm seeing AT&T trucks dropping fiber in the ground all over the place. It's about time. That's for yeah. sure. 
<laughs> well, speaking is about time. It's about time to get into the enterprise news. Now, coming up, we have a tech pack lineup. I can tell you that. We're first. We're going to dive into the world of cybersecurity. They're going to talk about botnets. We're talking about DARPA working with Raytheon. We're going to discuss Tassassi in the enterprise. But then you don't want to miss our third segment of the DNS, where we this week we actually go into internal DNS and Active Directory integration with experts Josh Qua and Ross Gibson from Infoblocks Plus. We're going to have a lot of great discussions there. So definitely stick around. Lots to talk about there later in the show. But first, we have to take you through this week's Enterprise News Blips. This week, we got to talk about a new botnet that's wreaking havoc. That's right. Botnets are still alive and well. They haven't gone away. According to this dark reading article, researchers at Lumen's Black Lotus Labs have uncovered a sophisticated Internet of Things botnet named the KV botnet. Now, this botnet has been linked to attacks on U.S. government and communications entities. The KV botnet, primarily targeting small office, home office network devices from various vendors, exhibits advanced stealth capabilities. It's capable of spreading across local area networks and has been active since at least February 2022. The botnet has infected a range of devices, including Cisco, Draytech, Netgear routers, and Access IP cameras. Intriguingly, the KV botnet is associated with Volt Typhoon or Bronze Silhouette, a Chinese state aligned threat group known for targeting U.S. critical infrastructure. Now, this botnet forms part of the Volt Typhoon's arsenal, which has been used in various cyber campaigns against telecom firms, ISPs, and a U.S. government organization in Guam. Botnet operates from China and it's divided into two clusters. First one being the KY cluster focusing on high value targets and the JDY cluster with broader, less sophisticated targeting. Most infections fall into the JDY cluster, but the botnet has also engaged with high profile targets, including military and judicial entities. Its stealth is pretty noteworthy here. The botnet resides entirely in memory. That's right, making it elusive, but also vulnerable to simple device restarts. It cleverly disguises itself, its presence, and terminates security processes, and it uses random ports for communication to avoid detection. Experts highlight the strategic use of Soho devices by attackers. These devices often with subpar security and are always not always up to date, ideal for concealing malicious activities. Now, they seldom monitored or updated, making them really easy for compromises. Now, Botnet, the KV botnet doesn't inherently spread to broader networks. It enables attackers to execute arbitrary commands and potentially launch further attacks within the local area networks. This development underscores the importance of robust security and cybersecurity measures, even in seemingly innocuous home and small office devices. So thank you to VentureBeat for this article. And interesting enough, one of our sponsors saw an opportunity to scale AI and reduce how overburdened, overburdened compliance and security teams are with repetitive tasks. Vanta is launching its Vanta AI suite today. Uh, actually, sorry, yesterday. The suite relies on AI and large language models to help teams get more of their time back by automating repetitive security and compliance tasks. Vanta AI features AI-powered vendor security reviews, generative questionnaire responses, questionnaire automation, intelligent control mapping, and suggestions on the best test and policies for each compliance framework. 
All of these features are needed for compliance and security teams looking for automation tools that scale and allow them to offload repetitive manual tasks. So having managed a wide variety of IT personnel over a huge variety of skill levels has pointed out, at least to me, that boredom from boring, repetitious tasks is a formula for mistakes. In the world of security, my wish is for AI to handle this repetition and then get my attention when something doesn't quite fit the models. Now, I think this is a perfect application for large language models based AI. So this Twit sponsor has a product that I seriously wish I had had back in the close of last century when I had to manage security audits for a huge number of networks. So to my colleagues that keep wishing for, quote, the old days, unquote, I say to you, the best is yet to come. Now, I enjoy covering revolutionary technology. So this week, I want to turn our focus to a game-changing development in military technology. That's why military. DARPA, the U.S. Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, has awarded Raytheon a $10 million contract for a groundbreaking project called the Persistent Optical Wireless Energy Relay, or power system. This system is set to revolutionize how energy is delivered in contested environments. Imagine high-altitude unmanned aerial systems equipped with laser-based tech, not just surveilling, but actually powering, powering operations on the ground or in the air. That's right, remote power. These drones will beam energy up up to a relay across multiple distances and deliver it precisely where it's actually needed. It's like an energy web in the sky, a dynamic and flexible power supply line that can support land, air, or sea-based operations indefinitely. Now, Colonel Paul Calhoun from DARPA highlights the strategic importance of this project, especially from military operations in remote areas where traditional energy supply lines are vulnerable and inefficient. Although there is an acknowledgement of power loss during the transmission, the benefits of this airborne energy system, especially in reducing the risks associated with transporting fuel in, in conflict zones, are huge. On a lighter note, it's like we're finally getting our version of sharks with freaking laser beams on their heads. Only this time, we're not just villains, villains fantasy here, right? It's more about high-flying drones powering our military, laser beams in the sky keeping our focuses charged and ready it's something and it sounds something straight out of a of a sci-fi film here yet it's really making it a reality okay so i cherry picked a portion of an article also from venture beat and i strongly encourage you to spend just a bit of time reading the full article however this section of the article i feel presents the bottom line um cradle point Acquiring Aircom is present where the SASE market is going and indicates how the framework will be adopted across global enterprises. VentureBeat recently hosted a conference call with CISOs and CIOs from financial services, healthcare, manufacturing, and professional services, all industries that lead in SASE adoption today to learn how the increased pace of mergers and acquisitions in the SASE market is defining the future of this area. CISOs and CIOs view the acquisition as strategic because it shows the potential to combine networking and security into a cloud service. CISOs also noted that a unified CradlePoint and Ericom cloud solution could better secure hybrid work environments in virtual teams. Read the whole article. It's worth your time. Keeping in mind 
that Cradle Point is known for cellular modems with lots of security features built in. And Ericom was originally a VDI company that launched a Zero Trust virtual desktop system before Zero Trust became the biggest buzzword on the minds of CISOs and CIOs around the world. So as my last prediction, as 5G approaches full rollout and is finally getting close to broadband speeds, what we may see in a very short span of time is to have a scenario where 5G modems terminate a secure data channel to a VDI server co-located with the cellular APN that implements a zero-trust virtual client that's on a secure virtual network that's the only way to get to sensitive resources. I'm seeing people like Cradlepoint and Ericom embedding these secure endpoint resources into all-in-ones and small black boxes that could very well be a set-top box. I'm also going to do, and I told you so, reminding folks that I predicted the revival of VDI over a decade ago during a quiet predictions episode, where I brought up that science fiction authors like Arthur C. Clarke talked about something just like this in his book, The Fountains of Paradise. Well, folks, that does it for the blips, but stick around because next up we're diving back into the world of DNS, so definitely stick around. But before we do that, we do have to thank a really great sponsor of this week in Enterprise Tech, and that's our friends at IT Pro TV, who's now called ACI Learning. Now, it's challenging. It's really challenging a market right now, right? If you're like me, who works in an organization that needs good people who have the skills that meet modern demands, there has to be a way to ensure people can build the skills they need for these roles, right? Well, 94% of CISOs and CIOs agree that attracting and retaining talent is increasingly critical to their roles. And with today's IT talent shortage, it's more important than ever for your team's skills to be current. Technology really evolves really so quickly that the skills gap develops very fast. In fact, 87% of companies say that they have a skills gap in their employees. Now, the challenge of evaluating your IT staff skills is overwhelming, but it doesn't really have to be. ACL Learning now offers a new tool, Insights, a revolutionary skills gap analysis tool to assure you that the training you're providing is actually working for your people. In a quick one-hour assessment, ACA Learning's insights will allow you to not just see, but understand and fix the skills gaps on your IT teams. Managers are all over rejoicing because this is really is the solution that people have been waiting for. With the insights tool, you can identify specific skill gaps in your employees and see where your team's weaknesses actually lie. Plus, empower your team with personalized training because you and I both know that generic blanket training wastes time and money and people don't find it interesting. Now, Insights offers detailed solutions, support, and strategy by issuing recommendations and training plans for individuals and your whole team. In fact, you can compare results against other organizations so you know where your org stands. Plus, you can test skills and close the gaps with practical labs that allow trainees to focus on the skills they need most. Bridging the skills gap is now more efficient for your team. That means ACI Learning helps you retain your team and entrust them to thrive while investing in the security of your business. More than 7,200 hours of content are available with new episodes added daily. ACI Learning outperforms its competitors with a completion rate that is 50% higher. That's huge. These are the training solutions your business has been waiting for. Future-proof your team and company with insights from ACI Learning. Visit go.acilearning.com slash twit. Twit listeners can receive up to 65% off an IT Pro Enterprise Solution Plan after completing their form. 
Based on your team's size, you'll receive a properly quoted discount tailored to your needs. Definitely check out ACI Learning for your organization. And we thank ACI Learning for their support of this week in enterprise tech. Well, folks, today we're going to wrap up our amazing series on DNS with our esteemed experts, Josh and Ross from Infoblox. Now, they're going to dive deep into the nitty gritty of internal DNS and Active Directory. Now, before we get to that, I remember the days of setting up on-premise networks in Anheuser-Busch, Thomson Reuters, and I vividly remember wrestling with Active Directory and DNS to support internally hosted services. So I, I definitely want to talk a little about that later, but it wasn't just a challenge. It was literally an adventure. <laughs> so I can definitely get to that. Now, on that note, I'm sure that Josh and Ross have a lot to say about those things and how they've evolved. So to kick it off, I'll toss it to you guys and just ask very quickly, how is an internal version of DNS different from an external version? Sure. As you said, it is definitely an adventure. Anything in the DNS world always ends up being that way. Um, you know, the, the biggest difference is that you're dealing with namespaces that are not resolvable on the internet, right? They're, they're only visible to people within your enterprise. That's, that's the most key distinction. And then in most cases, I would say, you know, probably better than 90% you find authoritative DNS and recursive DNS, the two pieces that we talked about over the past couple of weeks, combined generally onto one system, or it's, it's quite often. You, you could separate them internally, but I would say most corporations collapse those two into, into one server. Right, so the, um, <clears throat> the, the again, right, the main uh, difference is external DNS, by our definition is its intended audience is everybody else on the internet. Like I set up a web store, I have my domain name, I want names intended for the entire world. That's external DNS that we talked about in the last episode. And now we're going to dive into, well, let's say my company grows to be a, a much larger company. I need uh, some kind of AD uh, active directory infrastructure to support my internal networks. Well, when you have networks, you have DNS. That's how you find all the nodes. So this is for the intended audiences only on your network, usually privately addressed, not always. Um, but the names should, you know, should not leak out to the Internet. Now, one question I have you guys, because I know that a lot of organizations that I talk to, they're being encouraged to expose most of their services externally because they have a lot of remote workforce. And so they're saying, hey, let's expose a lot of these DNS remotely and then just enable kind of zero trust around it so that even though people can find these domains or even determine these domains, they still can't access them. They can't do anything to them. Is is, is Are you seeing a lot of organizations, are organizations still have internal DNS? Are they still focusing on it? Uh, yeah, I would say it's it's prevalent everywhere. If you have an internal active directory, you have to have a DNS. Right. It, it's not going to be based on namespace that's out on the Internet. So it, it's going to exist for a long time. Even in the zero trust world, uh, you're still going to have some some DNS. You know, one of the things as, as you bring that up, actually, it, it plays interestingly in the zero trust discussion, because historically people would try to control DNS resolution as a means of controlling access. Right. And while Resolution is a prerequisite for access. It does not equal access. I think that's an important distinction to make with respect to DNS. So, yes, you can limit resolution, but that alone doesn't necessarily cut off communications. It just makes it more difficult. 
It's interesting. So what's what kind of I mean, we, we had this conversation actually off 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 camera before the show is like how we separate the small business from the enterprise level businesses. Like, how are you guys? How, how is DNS different when it comes to a small organization versus an enterprise level organization? So like, right. Kind of what we're talking about. A lot of people would um, classify enterprise maybe by the size of the employees or number of devices. Uh, when we kind of threw numbers around like 5,000, 10,000, but in terms of DNS, right. If you're running, um, I think the rule of thumb would be if you have uh, a, a server or a box kind of running multiple functions, that's more of a small business way of doing things. As you go into the enterprise world, you specialize. You have different machines doing specialized functions, different teams doing specialized functions. Um, so that's where uh, that's where we're going to you know dive in a little deeper to talk about how you probably wouldn't want your uh, domain controller those capable, you probably don't want to also be your database server or a web server. So likewise, you know, you should not have it also run DNS in the enterprise environment. Yeah. And that, and that brings up a good point because I think there, there has been historically a misconception that active directory and DNS need to be run on the domain controller. And that's, that's simply not the case. Um, you know, it, it, Part of the reasoning for that is because of how critical DNS is to Active Directory, right? They're very closely intertwined, but there's no actual requirement that you run it on your domain controllers. And, and as Josh said, the busier your domain controllers get, the better off it is to split off those services. I'd say DNS seems to be the last one that comes off of it. But particularly in the cloud world, as you start to get Entra involved, where you're actually separating the authorization and uh, and authentication services into its own service, you really have to break those two pieces apart. That makes sense. It's interesting that you guys are saying split these things apart because I can tell you when you first set up a server, domain server, like obviously, and you're setting up Active Directory, the first thing is, yeah, hey, give me your DNS. And so they make you actually go and set up the DNS service on the same server. And so people usually just assume that, hey, I just, if that's the case, I'll just set it up all at kind of one process and I'll use a service on the same machine and I'll just set it up that way. So is that it's pretty typical for small businesses to do that kind of thing? Yes, I would say it's very typical. Uh, it, you know, like, like Josh said before, in that kind of, I guess, maturity model, right? A smaller business, they're going to have fewer servers, fewer people, right? So you, you generally are going to have less specialized uh, IT professionals that are covering a much broader ground. And then as you grow and have more people, you're going to have more and more speci specialization as you, you know, fall into issues that come with scale, right? Things just inherently get more complicated over time. And I'll share a little sort of anecdotal story about um, Active Directory and DNS, because uh, I used to do a lot of deployments and migrations. So I've had a customer who felt like, well, I'm going to run DNS. I'm going to keep it on the domain controller. But they had a, a little outage that caused the domain controller to restart and the DNS service. Everything else came back fine. But the DNS service, something went wrong with it. And because of that, nothing can resolve and the entire AD crumbled apart. Um, of course, and this customer drew the wrong conclusion, like, well, it's critical. So I can't, I, ca I have to keep them on the same box. I mean, well, that's actually not the cause of the issue. Um, in fact, you, that's my argument to say, we'll keep it separate um, because then you can 
your yeah, you can kind of have a specialized uh, dedicated resource to DNS to make you can add more layers of redundancy just to that component. Make sure it comes up before any of your AD infrastructure comes online. Yeah, and particularly in the enterprise space, the more and more mature you get, the more and more likely you're going to run into change control processes. And having that as a separate item uh, definitely makes things a little bit smoother in in getting your change control windows aligned. There's there's an interesting link that you guys put in the doc, which I saw which is is actually good. I'm glad we're going to talk about this because, you know, I'm most familiar, obviously, with Microsoft DNS and Active Directory and Intra. Like this this particular link talks a little bit about, you know, maybe taking the case for non-Microsoft DNS. Where Where is that a good case to go after, basically? Well, I think I think it's I think it it starts with the whole foundation of just breaking things into into dedicated services. Right. Whether they're whether they're Microsoft or not. Uh, is, is not necessarily the most critical piece to, to know about it, just to know that you can separate it out. And then the other key piece there is knowing that Microsoft requires DNS, but it doesn't require Microsoft DNS in order for an AD infrastructure to function. You can use any standards compliant DNS that'll handle normal dynamic updates because Active Directory is, is built on a completely standardized way of doing that. Uh, so just about any you know, typical commercially available DNS server is going to be, is going to be, you know, able to handle and support Active Directory, right? Active Directory is critical across so many places. Everything has to support it. Otherwise you you really would kind of be a, a non-starter in the DNS game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll tell so you I'll, what, I'll, I, I want to ask, this is a good place. Everybody and their uncle is talking hybrid, hybrid, hybrid. But AD and DNS and that whole migration, Josh, you, you've done a bunch of migrations and things like that. How is the cloud DNS services and combined with AD, what, what kinds of nightmares are people looking for, looking at, sorry? <laughs> well, they might also might be looking for nightmares for some people. Um, the, so... To, to get to that, you know, let's do a quick sort of a technical recap of why Microsoft is so, or AD is so dependent on DNS. So when an AD client signs into AD, authenticates into AD, right? It just Kerberos checks the credentials and it's, just, it's going to find, all right, I need all these services. Maybe I need to find my printer. I need to find the LDAP server. I need to find whoever. That finding mechanism is a DNS query. It looks for the SRV record, for service record. And the DC, the domain controllers will return some value to say, all right, I got three printers for you to select, uh, three print servers. And then the clients can pick through the SRV records to find those uh, and then make the actual connection. So, So that's one part. And the other part, too, is the client, as they log in to AD, uh, they were going to go, oh, I got an IP address. I got a name. I'm going to put myself into DNS. Now, uh, Microsoft calls it registering itself. Uh, it's also called dynamic DNS update. So it was send a little message to the DNS server to say, hey, my, my name is josh.laptop.com. My current IP address is whatever it is and puts it into DNS. Um, 
And if that part doesn't work, then your support, your whoever, people who try to reach josh.laptop.com by name wouldn't be able to get to the right place. And I'll throw the rest over to Ross because I took the easy one. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, the, the other piece I'll throw out there in the authentication scheme with, with site aware, what I'll call site aware clients, right? So a, a typical Microsoft client is going to, when it, when it authenticates to the directory, it's going to get back uh, site information as, as far as where it sits. And then it can actually make queries for site specific services so that it can get an optimal response. Unfortunately, not all clients are site aware. Uh, so in some cases, you have to get a little creative. And this, this kind of goes back to the piece that we were talking about last week with uh, GSLB or global server load balancing, where you actually can, in some cases, and, I, and I've worked with some customers to, to do that, to optimize, for example, in the cloud, going to what Brian was saying, if you have non-site aware clients and you've got some in the cloud and some on premises and you don't want the guys on premises to be authenticating against the cloud or vice versa, just from, you know, charges as well as just from traffic optimization or even more so if you've got a really uh, mobile network, let's say you've got ships and they have act active directory servers on them. You don't want them going to an on-premises authentication server because of the satellite delay is just going to, it's going to ruin the the experience. And then if you've got multiple ships going from ship to ship, it just makes it even worse. So the, there can be situations where you actually need to get down into that level and, and start doing some deterministic answers with your DNS to control that, that authentication process. Well, you know, we're, we're talking about doing this or doing that, but, we also need to talk about teams. Who owns what? Because there's an awful lot of different services and moving parts in this. So I'll use the example. At um, the University of Hawaii, only recently did the DNS team merge with the IPAM team. You know, people assigning IP addresses and managing the DHCP servers. Um, what kinds of team mergers or splits are you starting to see in the, in, you know, medium to large scale enterprises? Well, I, I'll take that just from my own experience. So I, I was actually a customer for gosh, about seven and a half years before I came to Infoblox um, and, and worked within an organization where we did have a dedicated DDI team and we were all under networking. But as that enterprise had grown over the years. Initially, DNS was owned by the open systems team, right? The people who ran the Unix servers that were that were running Bind. And of course, the D, the guys in the networking world don't want to deal with running servers at all. That's that's way too foreign for them. So eventually, they they got DNS, or I mean, sorry, DHCP, and had to control that because it aligns with IP addressing. So it kind of makes sense there. And then as you get into bringing DNS, DHCP, and IP address management together into that DDI hole that, that kind of is is the modern way of doing it. Uh, it. It tends to fall with the networking team in most cases, I'd say, from, from most customers. That seems to be where it ends up. Right. And I'll share what I've seen from the many dozens of customers I work with. Um, I see roughly three types. Uh, usually it's sort of by their history. Uh, if DNS used to be a service living on some kind of network gear, 
like a Cisco router or something like that, then tend to be inherited by the network team. If it's like Bind or Microsoft uh, AD, then usually the system team inherits it. And I've seen a new category because of the security team might have brought in, hey, we need a better, newer DNS solution because it really ties into visibility and uh, security control. Then the much rare uh, scenario is the security team might own the DNS component. Um, but what we're what I'm seeing more and more as I see people come, as um, I do education mostly now with classes, is there are bigger enterprises are kind. What I see is they're moving towards having a dedicated DDI uh, or even a DNS team, um, and they they'll work you know sort of in the middle because it you know DNS itself is a little weird. It's you got to know networking. You kind of got to know systems. You need to know, know some scripting, some coding, and it also ties into security. So it's kind of in overlaps with all of these, and it does kind of require a special skill set uh, as uh, the size of your enterprise gets bigger. Yeah, as uh, Josh and I were actually speaking earlier this week, and we we kind of got uh, I threw out a a description of DNS as kind of the the Rodney Dangerfield of network services. I love that. That's great. Well, you know what? We're going to talk a lot more about Roddy Joe Dangerfield of, of, of network interfaces. But before we do, let's, uh, we do have to thank another great sponsor of this week in enterprise tech. And that is definitely Vanta. Fast growing businesses are always utilizing tools, third party vendors, and lots and lots of data sharing. Adding those all together means more risk. That's right. Vanta is one of those game changing services, real time services that will change how you work. They were founded in 2018 after several high-profile data breaches. And as years progressed, online security continues to be one of the most important things organizations focus on. Novanta understands firsthand how hard it is for fast-growing companies to invest the time and staffing to build a solid security foundation. Vanta was inspired by a vision to restore trust in internet businesses by enabling companies to improve and prove their security. Vanta brings your GRC and security efforts together. In fact, they integrate information from multiple systems and reduce risks to the to your business and your brand, all without the need for additional staffing. And because Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for SOC 2 and ISO 27001 and more, you can focus on strategy and security, not maintaining compliance. G2 resoundingly loves Vanta year after year. Check out these Honest customer reviews from business leaders. Quote, there's no doubt about Vanta's effect on building trust with our customers. As we work more with Vanta, we provide more information to our current potential customers about how committed we are to information security. And Vanta is the heart of it. From a chief technology officer, quote, the best in automated compliance monitoring from a head of quality insurance and customer support there. Join 6,000 fast-growing companies like Chili Piper, Patch, and Autodesk that use Vanta to manage risk and prove security in real time. You can try Vanta free for seven days by going to vanta.com slash enterprise. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash enterprise to start a free trial. No costs or obligations. And we thank Vanta for their support of this week in enterprise tech. I want to jump in here. I have seen just an amazing number of reorgs in IT and telecom groups. And I'd like to talk a little bit about the forces that are pushing these around. And DNS 
time and time again was at the center of the conversations. Things like you're doing government contracts and you have to adopt IPv6. Um, unified communications and voice over IP, all forces for change in the technology groups. Now, I've seen a lot of changes in InfoBlox. I'm, I was actually at the University of Hawaii and we were an InfoBlox customer and I had a login to the cluster so I could go and manage different things just for my lab. But what about from the other side of the coin? Why don't you talk a little bit about the forces that are forcing these teams to reorganize and maybe you can do a little bit of a crystal ball on seeing what's happening in the DNS world that might force additional changes as the industry grows up even more. Boy, I I see people scratching their heads. I mean, I, th- I think the cloud definitely plays a part in that. It has it has uh-huh. to play a role because that's driven so much reorganization, you know, with the whole DevOps concept and then DevSecOps. So DNS hasn't completely been injected into that yet, although it, it generally plays as a part of those provisioning processes. So you might see to where that starts to get enveloped in, into those uh, parts, wh- whether that's just as an input or actually having a resource within those teams that that's capable of of dealing with that. But the larger the enterprise is, you know, the DNS can be one of those things where definitely on the smaller side of business, it's not worth dedicating resources to it, right? Because there's just not that much change. You know, somebody will spin up a server, somebody will take something down, but it's not something where you've got, you know, eight hours a day worth of work. But the larger you get, the more and more work there is. Now, of course, you can automate away a lot of that. And I would say that's more and more the trend, uh, whether you're, you know, building that as a part of, you know, Terraform or Ansible templates or scripts or whatever it may be for doing that provisioning and, and creating the DNS record as a part of that. Um, but I but I would say you, you're going to see more developers plugging into the API side of it. And then the question is, who's going to who's going to run that? Who's going to broker that? So I, I think the cloud's going to drive a lot of it. I, I just don't know exactly how it's going to shake out. But I would say you're probably going to see some in the cloud space are going to have to play more and more in DNS, which they have already with things like Route 53 or Azure DNS. So they're integrating with that somewhat. But when you get into the hybrid cloud world, integrating with the cloud resolvers, it can get complex very quickly. Well, mm-hmm. You know, when we talk about complexity, one of the titles I keep hearing now, one of the new titles is the DNS architect. Why? You know, is is this become such a complex weaving of services that we need full-time bodies when you start getting bigger? Yes. Yeah, so actually I was you. Thank you for that really well-timed question, because I was going to say, right, we're talking about all these possible conflicts among teams, among departments, among mergers. These DNS conflicts, uh, I've dealt with a lot of these. Every I can tell you right now, every company, every DNS environment I've ever analyzed is a pile of garbage accumulated over years, because nobody does a fresh architecture. They always inherit something that was passed down from the previous DNS administrator or architect. Um, and cause it's a lot of work to re-architect your, uh, like, like a network. 
technology evolve with cloud, you you're supposed to re-architect uh, your environment to keep up with these new features. And so I'll give you yet another example uh, from my consulting days. Um, so in for internal DNS, uh, a lot of teams might fight over, all right, well, who is authoritative for our internal name? The DNS doesn't work very well when you let multiple people all claim, I am the authoritative. I'm the one that has the, the right answer. You have to have one entity that says, I'm authoritative. I'm going to delegate out pieces. You, Unix team, you can run unix.company.com. AD team, you can run ad.company.com. But if you both run company.com, there's going to be conflicts. Uh, so I've seen a countless examples of that where people don't fully understand how DNS namespaces work. They just go, you know what? You run one version. I'll run, run one version and we'll try to do these creative patches to make them kind of work. And it creates very subtle issues. Uh, one of them would be somebody goes to site A on, on, on this network. Application works because of DNS lookups. But when they go to a different building, the same device looking at the same name doesn't work because now it's getting a different DNS answer. And these are very hard to track down because people think, oh, this is a generic application or network failure. And a lot of times they don't know where to look in DNS because when they do a lookup, works for me, I'm in building B, this works totally fine for me. I don't know why it doesn't work for you. So, um, so that's kind of a, you know, Ross and I were out there kind of evangelizing that, yeah, you have a network architect for bigger places. You have a database, uh, DBA sort of architect designer. Well, if your company is this uh, of the size and you're moving to the cloud, it's probably time that you get a DNS architect really rethink is your DNS architect designed the, uh, uh, the properly that's going to keep up with the times. Yeah. And, and it's, it really is critically important again at scale because all of your applications are dependent upon DNS, right? So if your DNS isn't working in not in an optimal way, all of your applications are not going to be working as well as they could be. Uh, so it's definitely worth investing the time and, and the money to having somebody do an actual DNS architecture for your enterprise, having one vision, you know, documenting standards uh, and getting things because once they're running smooth, it can really optimize things in a lot of ways. I mean, even to the point where, you know, I've seen some, you know, really high level businesses where, you know, a millisecond or two difference of an application response time can equate to a great deal of, of revenue difference. And so, when you can take that out of basically every network communication just by improving the quality of your DNS architecture, it's well worth the investment. Now, I want to drop, I'm going to jump into just like setting up DNS because I think that, you know, when obviously businesses are, you know, some businesses don't have DNS architects. I can tell you, I was definitely not one when I was setting it up. Um, and I think there was some challenges, like some simple things, like for instance, how should I name things internally? Like most DNS servers, they, when they, when you first set them up, they first, you know, tack on the dot local or, or they add on um, some kind of namespace. What's, what's the appropriate, what's some best practices there? I definitely have some opinions on that. Uh, the, the first, the first thing I would say I would advise people to do is 
build your namespace on namespace you actually own, right? So you're, you're going to own a namespace externally, right? So company.com, whatever it happens to be. Take a subdomain of that and make that the core of your internal namespace. The problem I've seen when you when you just kind of start with something randomly, and and this problem didn't used to be as big of an issue before ICANN started selling off customized TLDs. But once you got into the customized TLD world, you have a lot of situations where somebody built their internal network based on a certain namespace, right? So dot company. And if that happens to be a generic enough name, that there might be some other company out there that also has that name. And if they buy the TLD, then when your clients go off net for whatever reason, somebody takes their laptop and they go off, you know, off net, it's still going to be looking for that AD infrastructure to try to authenticate against. So you're going to be sending traffic to that other party. Maybe a big deal, may not be, but they're going to be able to collect a lot of information about what your internal network looks like. So if it happens to be a hostile par- third party, that could be a real problem. Okay. And this is a good time that maybe uh, we can bring up the, the one of the last, the last link that we have. That's a list to all of the currently registered top level domains. Um, and for the people on audio, you can also just Google search for new GTLD, that's generic top level domains. A lot of us think of the classics. There's .com, .edu, .net. That's it, right? Just a, just a handful. Now, I think the last time I counted as some, something like a thousand, a little bit over a thousand. So there's .beer, .free, .pizza, .abc, .rocks. Um, really just a lot of things you can think of. So you may have picked something thinking, well, I'm setting up AD. I'm just going to pick something random like .xyz or .abc. No one's going to ever use that. Well, guess what? Somebody probably just bought it last month. And now, you know, you, you have some name collision issues. Uh, and I'll throw in yet another, um, Ross talked about this could become a data leaking problem. Um, I have seen one where it's the, the, uh, the customer is a nuclear power plant. So they're under a very strict set of regulations that they cannot reveal their internal networks. However, they did exactly what Ross said not to do. They picked an internal name that became available on the internet and they misconfigured their DNS. So their, you know, nuclear power plant devices start making DNS queries and they somehow leak to the internet um, because they think, well, this name is now available on the internet. I'm going to go look it up from, you know, from root. Now, hopefully whoever registered, registered that name isn't collecting that data, but luckily, you know, they, this, this uh, particular customer luckily caught it in time. They had to one go through quite a bit of effort to re-architect their DNS setup. So, Choose wisely from the beginning to save yourself a lot of pain down the road. Yeah, I've definitely had a customer in that in that similar scenario where they they built their namespace completely innocently, uh, you know, around a, a TLD that they just made up, and several years later, that actually got bought by somebody in Korea, and they they had a, a huge concern just from a security perspective about why are you know 
we're sending all this data over to who knows whom and and we have to deal with that and so they had to re-architect their whole dns because of that so yeah if you're standing up a new dns the best thing you can do is buy some namespace create a subdomain a dot int right so let's say you you own company.com you can set up int.company.com and then use that as as your root for all your namespaces within your internal network now we have a lot more to talk about from setup perspective, so we'll definitely get to that. But before we do, we do have to thank another great sponsor of this week, Enterprise Tech, and that's Miro. Now, what is Miro? Well, it's an online workspace for innovation. But you may be asking, what does that exactly mean and how can it actually help? Well, Miro is one incredible visual place that brings all of your innovative work together no matter where you're located. It's packed with the right things to, d- to be your dream product's home base. We're talking six whole capability bundles from product development workflows to content visualization, and it's powered by Miro AI. That means you're generating new ideas or summarizing complex information pretty much instantly. Miro can work for any team, but product development teams really get the full experience. It offers Teams, the richest feature set of any visual workspace with specific tools to help with strategy or process mapping, facilitation tools to, to run effective design or agile sprints. You get the picture. Miro connects super seamlessly to platforms you're already using like Jira, Confluence, Google, Asana. And so you centralize your work in a way that makes sense for your team. They don't need to leave Miro to update projects or statuses in any of those tools. You can do it all through Miro. It also ends up being a massive time saver. Miro users report saving up to 80 hours, 80 hours per year because they streamline conversations, cut down on meetings, and see all the most up-to-date information in one place. Miro also just released a board video recording feature called Talk Track to save even more time. We're talking about pre-recording your thoughts and leaving it on the board instead of scheduling the millionth meeting of the week. Go on, try it for yourself. Get your first three boards for free to start working better together at Miro.com slash podcast. That's M-I-R-O dot com slash podcast. And we thank Miro for their support of this week in enterprise tech. Well, folks, we'll be talking about internal DNS, and I've been kind of pushing on the setup side of things because I definitely did not set these things up correctly. Um, I think I want to talk a little bit about just briefly about the fact that obviously there's a lot of talk about secure DNS. I mean, obviously the whole concept of encrypting things and, you know, does that apply to internal DNS? Should, should organizations be ensuring that they're securing their DNS and enabling this encrypted DNS clients? Okay. I'll take a first step and then I'll, <clears throat> I know Ross has a lot of thoughts on encrypted DNS um, and so do I. But before we get to why even encrypting it, right? That's a very double-edged sword. Let's talk about what is in embedded in your DNS queries. Like, you know, who cares? Like people might think, well, who cares? You see me looking up facebook.com. That's maybe a privacy thing. But what what else could, you know, could really be bad that comes from DNS queries? Well, and so we dedicated a few chapters in our book, uh, The Hidden Potential DNS Insecurity. We really talked about these is how most malware, I think the last time we looked at the statistics, 92% or more than malware are using DNS for communication, for command and control, for data exfiltration. Uh, and one particular, since we talk, talked about nuclear power plants and 
uh, a particular case that we cover in the book is spyware. So they could infect your phone. And when you walk into what you think is a secure network with no direct connection to the Internet. But DNS has a very unique hopping mechanism that could hop outward um, so that you think you don't have direct Internet access. But DNS does. It could hop through through forwarding, eventually getting to the attacker and back. And that's how they stole secret information out of the secure networks, including nuclear power plants. So that's what's in DNS queries. Um, so encrypting it, that's a, you know, and I'll let Ross finish why that's a double-edged sword. Yeah, so I, I think encrypted DNS, you know, it was it was really more conceived for privacy from, you know, kind of the, the non-enterprise user, right? So somebody just at home and trying to cover that, what, what was known as the last mile problem, right? So the, the communication between the client itself and its recursive DNS server. And that's the piece that encrypted DNS deals with. I would say in an enterprise space, you've got a lot of investigation going into what's happening within your DNS. Security teams spend a lot of time gathering and analyzing DNS data. And by encrypting it, you make that more challenging. Not impossible, but more challenging. Now, if you own the DNS server, you're still going to see that traffic regardless, right? Because you're the target for that. And by running your own encrypted DNS servers internally, you can actually see that traffic and then add those security controls back in. So the, the key thing is, is that you're going to see because operating systems are moving to selecting encrypted DNS servers by default, you're going to have to see enterprises build encrypted DNS servers internally in order to handle those clients rather than risking them, you know, try to connect to something on the internet, which is much, we talked about a, a couple of weeks ago, much more challenging when you deal with Doe uh, DNS over HTTPS because you can't determine the difference between the DNS traffic and the HTTP traffic. Right. And sort of, I guess, full, full circle back, tying it back to AD, that's yet another reason to decouple DNS from your domain controllers. Because now we're talking, you're a DNS server, probably, I, I think, in the very near future for most enterprises, need to support these encrypted DNS protocols for the reasons that Ross mentioned. So do you really want your domain controller to do all these AD functions and DNS and DSCP and handle encryption, right? That's just another thing you really don't, you don't have to throw it onto the domain controller. Use a specialized appliance or server, um, and then you can, you know, patch it. Um, you can, you can enable different protocols like DOH over HTTPS. There's new ones, DOQ over DNS over quick, DNS uh, over TLS. Just gosh, they, they just keep coming. Now, one yeah. thing I learned from you guys' book, because I did actually read part of it here, um, is that there's other ways to use DNS to secure things. So obviously DNSSEC is one way. But there's a laundry list, especially internally, the organizations can go set up and, and limit access and other things. What, what are some good best practices there? Yeah, so RPZ is the, the general technology that, that comes into play here, uh, response policy zones. And basically think of it as a way to implement policy uh, by name, right? So you can say, you know, I don't want you to go to badguy.com. And so you can take anybody that's querying for that traffic and you can tell them that it doesn't exist. You can send them 
somewhere else completely, or you can let them through and just log it. But you gain telemetry on knowing who's looking up those namespaces, which that alone is is valuable information. But the fact that you can take them and direct them elsewhere or just direct them to nowhere is a huge weapon uh, for security teams. It's one of those things where it, I don't want to say it's irresponsible, but it's almost irresponsible to run any type of large scale enterprise DNS uh, without some type of RPZ or DNS security mechanism there. It's, it's just, it offers way too much protection for such little effort. It's just, it's, it doesn't make any sense not to have some measure of DNS security in, in an enterprise network. Right. And I concur that's probably the lowest hanging fruit for an end when it comes to enterprise internal DNS. Uh, you mentioned DNSSEC. That's probably more for external DNS. If you're setting up external DNS, think about DNSSEC. That's more for the world. Um, when you're doing internal design, uh, the, again, DNS community loves making up new terms. So we have another one called protective DNS, PDNS. Different from passive DNS, which we invented 20 some years ago. Uh, so protected DNS uses something like an RPZ. Basically, it downloads a or synch synchronizes with a threat intel source to know what are the best bad names today. And I'm going to drop or block these. Those are very easy to implement. A lot of vendors out there, uh, not just Infoblox, many other vendors support it. So, you know, definitely get that for your internal uh, corporate uh, DNS lookup. All right, I'm going to jump in. I'm going to ask my infamous crystal ball question. Where are we going? Because it sounds like there's a lot of things changing. Um, a lot of, I, I've been to a several IETF meetings and talk about f herding feral cats. <laughs> Where's the DNS world going? You know, you guys obviously work for a big DNS appliance vendor. Um, Bind has some really cool things. Um, I wouldn't do DNS on um, Active Directory to save my life if I could. But the world has to be converging someplace. We're, we're going towards something. And I'd like you guys to go and peer into your crystal ball. And where do you think we're going? You know, DNS came from a kinder, gentler world. But things have to change because there's a lot of bad people out there. So, Ross, Josh... Shine up the crystal first. ball, man. <laughs> yeah, so uh, we we actually did uh, put some of this in into the book uh, in what we what we call mm -hmm. DNAP, uh, DNS and Network Assured Policy. So it's it's basically taking the DNS process and integrating it with your network controls, right? So in other words, especially in the world of Doe where you could have somebody going out and looking up something via a DNS server that you're completely unaware of and then trying to get there by making sure that people are using the approved DNS server for your enterprise before opening up the firewall to allow that traffic. That's where you can start to bring those two together and force people to use the DNS server that has your policy controls in it. That, that's the real key is that once you get Doe going on, 
if people were able to get that traffic out to some third-party DNS server, not only are they going to have problems resolving the internal namespace, but any of the security controls that you've put in place to protect your users are completely you know, invalidated. So you need to force everybody to use the DNS servers that you have. And the next step, I think, to getting to that is to is to actually integrate basically the firewall with the DNS so that the firewall knows you use the proper DNS server in order to start this communication. So I will allow the communication. And if not, I block it. All right. And so I think we both agree that basically the overall big direction is DNS will play a even bigger role in security in the coming years. I think that's a very safe bet. Um, there's the DNAB concept that, that Ross talked about, uh, that we describe in detail in our book, how to use it to control your, you know, internal traffic going outbound. And then there is also uh, abuses on the internet today. There are millions of domains being registered every single day for no good reason but to host malware, phishing sites, whatever scam of the day is. Okay. And currently the, t- the detection and takedown process is just too long. It just takes too long. And by the time you, f- you, you convinced ICANN, this is a bad place. Take it down. It's too late. The, the the scammer the attacker already moved on he already's got all your bitcoins and in these you know seven months ago so i think uh, i know there's some uh, some some talks i i, I recently attended uh, ICANN is talking about we need to streamline all this process to make it one harder for people to register these malicious names and two to detect them quickly and three to take them down quickly. Now that sounds easy, but there's a lot of the governance and, and, and compliance side of things that they're trying to work out. Um, so I hope for all of us, they do work it out because, you know, the internet is getting DNS, you know, just internet overall is getting dirtier and dirtier with just infections and malwares. And yeah. So at the point there, I think at some point we had to go to do the same thing that we did with network firewalls decades ago, right? Earlier days, we're like, yeah, it's wide open and we'll block this and we'll block that. Pretty soon we learned, no, firewall will block everything by default and let this out and let this out. I hope we don't get there, but we might be, DNS might be someday to say, that's it. No names will resolve except these names that we say are okay to resolve. I hope we don't get there but we might. Well, thank you guys. This, this has been a fantastic series. I've learned a lot myself, actually. In fact, we've had an overwhelming response regarding the usefulness of all the information. So thank you so much for giving us all the great content and really taking the time to share with everybody. Now, did you guys want to take maybe a moment to maybe pitch something, talk about something, maybe talk about your book a little bit? Sure. Uh, as Josh mentioned before, it's called The Hidden Potential of DNS and Security. Uh, it's available on Amazon. We've got paperback, hard hardcover, as well as Kindle versions. Uh, and it, it really, it, I will say the, the focus of that book is on the security professional. So the, this is not for the DNS architect. It is for the people that interact with DNS, but aren't the ones responsible for running it. And it's about how they can take DNS and use it as a security tool. Uh, which, as Josh said, it, it's really going to become a, 
a bigger and bigger player in the security world. And, and it's there's no reason not to use your DNS uh, as a security tool these days. And both Ross and I are on LinkedIn, and we are slowly writing more blog entries for our uh, blog, uh, dnsinsecurity.com. So we're going to try to share more thoughts uh, there, maybe some for the, security, uh, for the DNS architects, too. Fantastic. Thank you guys so much for your time and all the great information. Appreciate it. Thanks for having us. It's been great. Yeah, thank you. I know, Curtis and at G. Burton, you know that this was the last episode of this week in enterprise tech. And it breaks my heart. Lisa and I have had to make some very tough decisions over the last few weeks. And uh, among them, we're canceling some shows. And this is one of them. I'm sad to say you have a devoted and, uh, and uh, uh, I mean, loving fan base who've really supported you, but it's, I'm afraid too small for us uh, to support. So, um, uh, there are a couple other shows we're canceling. We've already announced some, um, this is one of them. Uh, I've already told, uh, this isn't a shock to Lou or Chibert or, or Curtis, but I did. The reason I wanted to do this in show is I wanted to give you all a chance to, uh, to uh, say goodbye and to uh, thank the audience and to tell people, uh, how to reach you uh, going forward. Um, it, it breaks my heart. It's a hard thing to do. Uh, we never want to cancel shows, but just economics require it. So, Lou, uh, you've done a great job taking over for Father Robert. Um, the show's been fantastic. Brian, you've been here forever. Curtis, too. Uh, all the people. Uh, this was a terrible show to end on because it was so damn good. Uh, this has been a great series on DNS. And, I'm, uh, you know, it, it makes me doubly sad, frankly, because the content has been so important. Yeah. Um, but I'll, I'll let you guys uh, say goodbye. Uh, I just I didn't want you to have to be the bearer of bad tidings. Thank uh, you, Leo. I am the Grim Reaper this week. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry to say. <laughs> well, I, I tell you one thing. Father Robert obviously kicked this show back off, what, in 2012? And, you know, obviously Curtis and Chebert were at the helm there. Um, and they, they, they really developed the show into like a pretty amazing format, I think over the years. And I think obviously with the support of, you know, you, um, and Lisa and, and twit really, I think the show just excelled over the years. I think we've had so much great content. In fact, it's, it's really for me when I picked it up as hosts, um, after father Robert passed the baton there, um, I think it was just a really a chance for me to not only develop good friendships, but, um, get to know some pretty brilliant people. Uh, I, I talked to CTOs and CEOs and CISOs and IT professionals, you name it. I, I learned a ton, a ton of stuff. Um, and I, I've personally grown myself, I think, during this entire journey. So I, I definitely think it's been a, a great opportunity to to really meet the people that are shaping the world and the enterprise world. And and uh, I, I definitely feel blessed. So thank you so much for for the opportunity. And, um, you know, and. And, you know, also I want to thank all the, the co-hosts over the years too. Like, uh, you know, obviously Mr. Brian, she, Curtis Franklin, we had Oliver Rist, we had Heather Williams, we had Brian McHenry. Um, so we, you know, we de definitely had a lot of, you know, great professionals that came in and, and got to be part of, uh, the show and, and kind of, you know, direct us in many different ways. And obviously all the behind the scenes people that really helped me make the show, uh, twit, uh, do be really successful. So, um, just thank you for everything. And, uh, it's been a great ride. Um, like I said, I've been telling, I told Lisa, you know, this is, uh, it's always been a roller coaster ride for me. I just enjoyed the entire ride. And of course I knew at some point we'd end up having to, to get off the ride. Um, and, uh, and again, it's just been a great ride for me. So thank you. 
Well, Eleven years is a long time to talk about enterprise. You guys have, <laughs> you guys have a lot of stamina. That's all I can say. <laughs> now, Kurt and I have known each other for going on at least two decades, maybe wow. a little longer. And he and I have written some absolutely massive um, articles in the past when we were at first Internet Week and then Infoworld together, and. For a little while, my lab at the University of Hawaii was one of the top five testing labs in the United States. And all the huge, huge, big iron tests that InfoWorld mm. did for, I don't know, maybe half a dozen years was, was, were done in Hawaii. So that was a lot of fun. And being able to share that experience with the viewers has been amazing. And um, I'm still going to be at uh on twitter because i'm stuck there i've got a lot of iot stuff that talks to my twitter address uh and i still own a isp a wireless internet service provider in honolulu actually i'm a partner with a guy and so i'm going to keep my fingers in there and jeff maracini and um sorry i didn't get the uh, question about blockchain in there but you know we'll we'll talk lots of blockchain in the future but thank you very much for the opportunities and it was great. You know, I was actually at the, um, in the brick house when Leo asked Padre if he wanted to run an enterprise show. Wow. So that was a lot of fun. And Padre, um, you know, we were, we we're all chatting in Discord thinking, Padre must have registered dot Catholic. Yeah, I saw that. <laughs> He may well have. He probably had the idea. <laughs> well, the uh, the the telephone number, I think, is his Rome number. So Oops. he might have done that one. <laughs> Hysterical. The reality is, is I'm pretty easy to find. You know, Chibert doesn't have too many um, duplicates out there. Someone did grab Chibert on Twitter, so I don't know what whatever's. But anyway. Love to hear from you and uh, um, look forward to seeing you folks in real life as we start doing other things. Uh, I wanted to say I've been defining myself as a journalist for the better part of four decades now, going way back to computer shopper in Byte magazine days. And I've been very proud of the journalism that we've done here on This Week in Enterprise Tech. Um it's a very specific kind of journalism, what I call advocacy journalism, because we haven't just put out facts and, and stories. We put them out because we wanted our listeners to succeed. Uh, we had a point of view, and and that's valid. And I think we've done uh, done a good job at that. And I've been proud to be able to do that um, and also been proud to do it as part of the Twit Network. You know, Leo and I, I think first met when we were both speakers at the very first podcasting conference oh uh, back in the in the in the Pleistocene. Um, <laughs> but it's it's been a great operation. Uh, no one knows better than than Leo that podcasting has been a wild ride so far and um i'm not at all sure it's going to get any less wild going forward I have no idea what it's going to bring but it'll be something entertaining um people who want to follow me can best way to do it is on linkedin i'm curtis franklin at linkedin please follow me 
Uh, and I am always thrilled when someone walks up to me at a conference uh, or at a trade show and uh, recognizes my voice and comes around and, and wants to meet me. I'm always delighted to meet people. So I continue to want all of those who listen to Quiet to succeed, to be happy. And I look forward to catching up with you somewhere down the road. Definitely hit me up on whether it's on x.com at LUMM. I'm Louis Moresca on LinkedIn. Lots of great conversations I have on there, whether it's about careers or technology or implementations or architecture, that kind of thing. Definitely hit me up there. If you want to see what I do, do during my normal work week at Microsoft, definitely check out developers.microsoft.com SAS office. There are my engineering teams post all their latest and greatest ways to, to customize your office experience, make it more productive for you. In fact, if you have Microsoft 365, Open up Excel right now and check out the Automate tab. That's right. The Automate tab is a new tab that's in Excel. Let's you automate things, let you generate JavaScript, run it on in Power Automate, let you do remote uh, automations through for Excel, whether it's opening the document yourself and in, 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 in interactive or even behind the scenes. Definitely check that out and automate things and make things more productive for you guys. I want to thank everyone who makes this show possible, especially thank you to Leo and Lisa over the years. They supported Enterprise this week at Enterprise Tech, and we really couldn't have done this show without them. So thank you for all their support. Of course, thank you to all the engineers. They made it possible. Of course, thank you to Mr. Brian Chi as well. He was not only our co-host, but he was our tireless producer as well. He did all the show bookings and the plannings for the show. So we really couldn't have done this show without him. And of course, before I sign out, thank you for the editor today because you know what? They make us look good after the fact to remove all of my mistakes. Thank you very much for that. And of course, thank you to our TDD for today, Mr. Jammer B, because you know what? Without you guys, we couldn't have done this show and made it more smooth, very smooth and fluid. So I appreciate all, all of that as well. One last comment. I want to say thank you to our viewers for 573 amazing episodes. Wow. That's a lot of great content you guys have created. And, you know, I'm thinking about Byte and InfoWorld and all the other magazines that died long before us. Uh, I hope we're not going to go the same way. I think it's really vital that people get this kind of information, the information they need. That's why we started Twiat all those years ago. That's why I wish we could keep doing it. We just can't afford to. Uh, and that's why I hope somebody else picks up the mantle uh, and keeps this show uh, and the enterprise news flowing because I think it's so important. Uh, everybody needs to hear this. And Lou, you've done such a great job picking up the mantle from Father Robert and I. Thank you and Curtis and, and Brian. You guys are great. I really appreciate it. No reflection on you at all. Uh, or the subject matter, frankly. Uh, it's just, I think, maybe mostly uh, the problem with podcasts. Yeah. 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 Thank you. I appreciate it. All it's right. been fun. Um, it's been a great I'm going to let you guys go. Wish you a happy, happy holidays. You got a little more free time on your Fridays now. Uh, <laughs> hopefully right. use that to good advantage. And to our great audience, we thank you so much for so many years. We appreciate it. We hope we'll see you at other Twitch shows. Of course, these guys will appear on our other Twitch shows on a regular basis. You can count on that. Uh, and if you're not yet a Club Twit member, this is how you keep this from happening is by joining Club Twit. Uh, your support makes a huge difference. Thank you, guys. We'll see you. Happy holidays. Thanks, Leo. Here's to a great Thanks, 2024. Take, Take care, care, everybody. Yeah. Take care. Bye. Best wishes. Since our founding in 2000, we at the Center for Internet Security have always had one mission. It's to create confidence in the connected world for people, 
businesses, and governments. As a nonprofit, we do this by drawing upon our core competencies of collaboration and innovation. The world is changing, cyber threats are evolving, and IT resources are limited. All you want is a way to strengthen your cybersecurity programs efficiently and effectively. Let CIS help you with these efforts. We use a consensus-based process involving IT professionals from around the world to develop and maintain security best practices. These resources are proven to defend systems and data against threats, both on-premises and in the cloud. We also strive to help organizations of every size and maturity strengthen their cybersecurity programs. This includes serving U.S. state, local, tribal, and territorial government organizations. At CIS, we're all about making the connected world a safer place. Visit our website to learn more.